And usually they're bigger firms. Now, not to say that we shouldn't and can't use small firms, but the small firms are struggling first with, you know, the labor because, you know, they don't have the, let's say maybe the employee benefits or the jobs, you know, down the line. So a medium size to a bigger firm is very, very important for these kinds of times because what they have the ability to do is they have big credit lines. They've been through downturns. They've been up and down before. And so they are used to these kinds of things. And hopefully they're doing the things that they need to do to make sure that they have the materials and things like that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman, broadcasting from the sunny, you know, lucky me, Providence, Rhode Island. Today, I have a very, very special guest with me on the show, Ken McElroy. So Ken is the CEO of MC Companies. He started in real estate Back in 1999, with a property management company, Ken specializes in multifamily investing, in property management, and in development, and his company owns about a billion dollars in assets under management, which is very, very impressive. On top of that, and you probably know, you probably read at least one of his books, Ken is the author of The Sleeping Giant, The ABCs of Real Estate Investing, and The Advanced Guide to Real Estate Investing, and, and many more books. And you probably you know, know this as well, but he's also the real estate advisor to Robert Kiyosaki of The Rich Dad Company. So he's on top of all of that. He's also the host of the Entrepreneur Magazine's Real Estate radio program and he serves on the board of directors for the southwest autism research and resource center and without further ado i would like to welcome ken to the show hey ken hey ellie how are you great to be i'm on doing great yeah awesome awesome thank you so much and you're recording this from scottsdale arizona yep it's perfect here right now you know but uh, summer suck but it's perfect now that's good for you. So let's get started. If you can share with me and the listeners how you found yourself in real estate. Yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting. I don't know how many people have done it intentionally, right? You know, just kind of, you figure it out through other people. And so what happened to me was I was finishing up college. I went to school on a wrestling scholarship and I was getting my business degree. And my friend called me and he said, hey, 
you want free rent? And I'm like, yes. You know, because starving college kid, running up debt, you know, trying to get through school. My parents, you know, they didn't graduate from college or they didn't go to college. And so, you know, we didn't have the, the financial wherewithal. And the, thankfully, I was in school for sports. So I went to work for a property management company managing properties. I'm like, how hard can that be? You know, collect rent. And my dad was a contractor, so I knew how to fix stuff. And I did that for a while. The property was a disaster, right? But I didn't know any better. So I, I got a free apartment plus $600 a month. And I thought I was in heaven at the time, you know, and it's crazy now to look back. But I tell you what, it was full of problems. And so I, you know, common sense, property management is generally pretty common sense. So I started working there, turned the property around, cleaned it up, got the units ready, started collecting rent getting people out that couldn't pay, all that kind of stuff that you would just normally do just normally. And then about a few months later, the owner came in and he pulled up in this really nice Mercedes and, you know, I hand him the rents for the, you know, the month and he goes to the bank. I'm like, man, I'm on the wrong side of the desk here. This is probably, and that was it for me. I was like, wow, you know, obviously collecting all the rents and looking at the expenses and coding all the bills and all that kind of stuff. You get a real sense on how a property is doing financially, you know, when you overlay the mortgage in there. And I was like, this is a pretty good investment for this guy. And so I ended up going to work for that company, which is now a very large company in Seattle. It's called Pinnacle. And that started in Seattle. And I, I started there with John Goodman, who started the firm years ago, and he pulled me right out of college. I had no experience. And, and I started managing properties for the first 10 years. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I would get properties that were a mess and I would get properties that are really, really difficult. And that's why I learned how to create value in real estate. And it was an incredible opportunity. But then again, one day I was like, you know, I need to own these things. I'm fixing them up for all these guys and I'm creating all this value. And I was grateful for all of it, but I said, I need to be on the ownership side. So gosh, that would have been my late nineties. And that was it for me. And I just started buying from there. That's interesting. You know, a lot of multifamily owners, they work with a third party company and, and we do the same. And there's, you know, some of them transitioned and started basically to either they purchased a property management company or they started it from scratch. So one thing that I constantly hear is that it's not a profit center. Maybe you're breaking even or losing some money and you do it because you're saving on the cost side. So there's no, not a lot of profitability when you look at the property management company as a company. Do you share the same philosophy? So, yeah, it's interesting. So I've started five property management companies in my life so far. And currently the one I have, we have 250 employees and we manage our own property. So I've done fee management, I've done all that. And, and so it depends, obviously, if you're in the fee management business, it's really, really difficult and really, really, really competitive. And people are undercutting everybody for a half a point, quarter point, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So when your revenue is kind of squished and now we have all these rising labor costs and all these other things, I would agree with you. Uh, there is a point when from like zero to about 4,000 units, you're actually kind of profitable because, you know, a few people can, can do that. But then when you get to that next level where you're adding marketing and, you know, training and HR and all the stuff that, you know, you, you're growing into a real company, it's actually not very profitable. 
And then you get to about 10,000 units and then it becomes profitable again once you kind of have that economies of scale. And of course, it depends on the asset types and all of those things. But yeah, it's, I love the business because, you know, an onsite manager can't bolt me. I mean, you know, I've walked units, I've cleaned units, I've painted units, I've maintenance units, I've leased units. And it's actually been really good for our company culture too. So, you know, in Arizona, at least we've won one of the top employers, not in real estate, but just employers for the last six, seven years in a row, we're in the top 50 repeatedly. And I think we're the only maybe one or two real estate firms. So it's been good just, you know, because again, like when you're hiring maintenance guys and leasing and all that kind of stuff, and they know that you've done it, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and by the way, what a great way to buy properties, you know, because brokers, yeah. you know, as a property manager, I, the, an owner would come to us sometimes, sometimes the day of closing and say, we need a property management company. And then they would hand you this stuff, you know, and then you would have to sort through it all. And so that experience was phenomenal. So now I, I know what to look for in the assets while we're buying them. And so I think so far we're somewhere over 3 billion now in acquisitions and we're just north of a billion on actual ownership where I'm the general partner and, and owner on everything, but it's really suited me well. It's been a phenomenal business and the knowledge comes from, you know, seeing what you see and, and absolutely. not, yeah. So it's been, it's been wonderful. All right. Absolutely. That sounds great. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the asset and multifamily as an asset class. It, I think it's clear to me now why you kind of answered one of the questions of why you chose to focus on multifamily. And I understand, you know, if you started your career in real, in real estate as a property manager, what a better way to use the knowledge and experience that you have to actually buy those assets. Was there any other reason why till today you remain active in multifamily? Yeah, for sure. So I've, I've been all over the map since then. So I've mm. done condos, projects, I've done condo conversions, I've done self-storage, office buildings, land development, single family. Oh, wow. uh, all, I've, I've had my fingers in all of those things. And one of the things I love about multifamily is I can literally go change the needle quickly. You know, I can get units rented the next day, you know, a week later, and there's a lot of room, you know, on the value add side. So like self-storage doesn't really have a value add play. It's literally like a great place to park money. But, you know, an eight by 10 is an eight by 10. If there's another one, you know, two blocks over or a mile over, you know, you're pretty much locked at a price point. Well, whereas multifamily, there's all kinds of stuff happening. There's new properties and older properties and you can value add. And, and on the commercial stuff, they're big tickets, you know, and when we have a tenant move in, one of our floor pads, let's say, or one of our floor plates, you know, we might be stroking 150, 200 grand just to, you know, put tenant improvements in to get them to move in and you get it back in your lease. But so I just love multifamily because it's, uh, this feels like there's so many levers you can pull on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to move the needle. And we have, we all have those issues. We have issues with vendors. We have issues with people. We have issues with residents and occupancy. And just like I do. And so, so sometimes I'll sit down with the president of our management company and I'll go, Hey, uh, you know, we've got 20 units vacant over here and they've been, you know, they've, they haven't been, and boom, you know, we have attention immediately on that. Or I go out to the property. And so you can really, and you know, you can do a blitz and, and rent those things quickly. And so I like being able to control the income 
and the occupancy and all that kind of stuff. If you're really paying attention, you, you can really move the needle really, really well there. It's a lot harder on the expense side. Obviously, we have all the expense Great, controls yeah. that a lot of people have. And we can talk all day long about that if you like. But, you know, it's much, much easier to move the needle on, on income. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the most interesting deals out there are deals where the, you know, you do your market research, you look into the property, you look into the comps, and you realize that the rents are at least $150, $200, $300 below market. And then if you renovate the units, you can actually push rents. And we see that many times. We actually call every comp and we ask them, how much is your rent? What's included? What's the renovation scope? And we compare the price per square footage for a renovated for classic unit. And you see a lot of value out there. And I'm always curious, how is it possible that the owner doesn't maximize the rent? I mean, for the most part, you know, two, three, 500 units, there's a very established property management company in place. These are not managed by mom and pops. And yet almost always there's a healthy delta between the actual rent and the market rent. And I was always curious why the current ownership is not maximizing the rents. Well, as you know, not all property management companies are, are the same and they can, vary, they can vary greatly. And I've found that oddly enough, that some of the best deals that I've made have been with big, big companies, big REITs and big institutionally managed companies for a lot of reasons. You know, you would think on the outside that they're incredible. And in a lot of ways they are, they're heavily capitalized and all that. But I found that sometimes there can be so many layers of management, you know, in between the corporate office and the mm. on-site. Literally, you can have regional managers and district managers and, you know, on-site managers. You know, by the time things happen and you can get so corporate and so buttoned up from policies that oftentimes it doesn't always resonate down. And, you know, and they hire great people and all that, but it's a boots on the ground business. It's a very basic business. And I, I found that people that take it beyond the basics, which is just kind of what you said, like just figure out what the market is, but they don't, you know, they, they will sometimes they rely on corporate to do those rent surveys for them, or they rely on some third party, let's say to do it. And that's just not how it should be done. It's really real estate is a very localized business. You literally have to know what your comps are and check on right. them regularly because they do change. And that's the only way. So I found because of the inefficiencies, that's been a massive benefit to all of us, including you. You can, you know, we can go in and, and change those rents and upgrade those units like that. I, I it still blows my mind. Even at this point in our cycle, I bought, let's see, we bought about eleven or twelve hundred units this year, and we're we're under construction on. Well, we have five development deals going and the one that we is under construction is 330 units. And, and I still find, even with all of that, that there's massive opportunities, even today, as hot as the market is. And it just blows my mind. We just bought a building in Austin, Texas. To your point, the owner had it for 17 years, self-managed. And he probably managed it pretty well for a while, but it's clear he didn't for like the last six or seven or eight years. So, you know, we're going to go in and breathe new life into it, make it look great and clean it up. It's going to cost a bunch of money to do it. You know, I think we're spending eight or nine million dollars on the project, but, you know, it's going to look great when we're done with it. And, you know, that's a great benefit for our investors and, and everybody wins. 
That sounds great. Yeah, these are the, the deals that we're also, you know, looking forward. They're a bit harder to find these days. And with the bidding war that is out there, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on yield. So, you know, you probably did the same with your investors, educating investors on, you know, what to expect in terms of yields, you know, hitting eight, nine, 10% cash on cash is almost non-existent in today's market, at least not in the deals that you want to own. There may be in riskier deals or in very small markets, but in growth, solid markets, you can't really find those deals anymore. Let's talk a little bit about development because you're also involved in development and a big part of the process in managing a developed deal is basically a development deal is making sure that labor costs are under control, that materials are there when you need them, as much as you need them and that they cost as close as you can get them to the budget. And it's interesting because, you know, on some of the deals we've been working on, especially those in 2020, labor and materials have increased. The cost has increased significantly from the moment we won the deal to the moment we closed it, which was 60 days or 45 days later, till the moment we actually started getting ready, which was maybe 30 days after closing, we started to, you know, improve the property and renovate the units. The cost just kept increasing just, it seemed really crazy. And I'm wondering, so we had some money set aside to, you know, for contingency to account for it. But I'm wondering, you know, if you can share, you know, the challenges that you've had to go through in a development deal, because obviously that, you know, if in a multifamily, in a value-add deal, maybe that's 20% of the whole picture in development, material and labor, that's pretty much a bigger portion of the pie. If you can share some of the challenges that you've had to deal with and how you handled it, that would be really great to hear. Yeah, thank you. Well, so there's a couple things to consider here. One is who are your subcontractors? So that's a biggie, you know, and, and, and I, I think never more has it been significant. So as an example, we've been developing apartments for a while and we use a lot of times the same framers, the same you know, drywall and sheetrock and same concrete guys and the plumbing, electricals, not always, but generally, you know, we're always bidding everything out. And usually they're bigger firms. Now, not to say that we shouldn't and can't use small firms, but the small firms are struggling first with, you know, the labor because, you know, they don't have the, let's say maybe the employee benefits or the jobs, you know, down the line. So a medium size to a bigger firm is very, very important for these kinds of times because what they have the ability to do is they have big credit lines. They've been through downturns. They've been up and down before. And so they are used to these kinds of things. And hopefully they're doing the things that they need to do to make sure that they have the materials and things like that. On renovations, it's a lot more difficult. And I'll get into that in a minute. But on our development project, as an example, however, with all of that, we had one project that our lumber package was one million higher than our budget. Wow. Just lumber only. And then you have OSB board and all the other stuff that also has gone up. And this is, you know, this is before appliances, which are kind of now that whatever he's talking about now. And so now it's come back, you know, it's, it's kind of come back in into reality again, but we're still over budget on lumber. But the key is to have, if I was going to do a development or any kind of renovation, the key is to have a really nicely padded contingency. 
because things are more. And the other thing is, is you have to stage them. So I was talking to a general last week on a different project that I was working on. That you know they're ordering cabinets and appliances. You know, eight, ten months before the project's done, they're actually renting warehouses to house stuff so they can stage it. And that's you know that's really forward thinking for their clients. And and so there's a bunch of things that you know we just don't have control over. And you know I saw an article the other day. It said you know maybe. You know, almond appliances might be back, you know, <laughs> everybody was switching them out for stainless at one time, but, you know, now that's really hard to get. So I think that, you know, those are some of the things that, that we've done. Oddly enough, we're certainly affected on the price side, but the subcontractors that we have had, the bigger ones, they've been all right so far. We've had a little hiccup on, as I said, on lumber, a little bit of hiccup on some OSB and a little bit of hiccup on appliances. But, you know, we have national contracts with Whirlpool and GE and all that. So that's certainly helpful because of the size we're at. We have, uh, right now we own around 7,000 units. And so we have our property management company too, where we have kind of good buying power. And so all of those things kind of working together, but even with all those, and, and we're, we're not a massive company, you know, like there are some companies that are significantly bigger, but they're all kind of, they all kind of have the same kind of stresses. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see where this whole industry is going to end up. I don't think it's going to fix itself or I don't think it's going to get any better in the next year. There's still a huge backlog and I hope that the costs are going to maybe stabilize a little bit, just a little bit, just need a little bit of a break. But yeah, I think definitely probably in the next 18 months, we're still going to see the same trend, the same challenges as you've mentioned. Ken, I want to transition and talk about something a bit different, and that's the new tax bill. And, you know, it's investors are looking into the tax bills and they take that into consideration when it comes to the strategy, how much to invest, how to invest, how to diversify across the board between real estate and other asset classes. What are your thoughts on the latest version of the tax bill? Because it has been changing a lot recently. Yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff on the chopping block each and every time a new administration comes in. And, you know, we have we have the 1031 that's being talked about. We have the carried interest that's being talked about. We have the step up in basis, which is being talked about. We have the capital gain, which is right now, I think, on the board to go from 20 to 25. And who knows what else? And then in addition to that, there's a whole bunch of estate planning stuff that's going away. And so, you know, the 1031 has been around for over 100 years. I actually think that we're going to be good there. I do. And I, I think sometimes they throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and, you know, make it all sound really big. But really, they have their eyes on a few other things. I think that we're going to see a capital gain, which basically means, I mean, now we're, you know, we're in November already. So if you're not selling by the end of the year, you're probably going to be paying a higher number next year, at least 5% more or 20% more, I should say. It's going to go from 20 to 25 so I think on the bigger side of that, one of the greatest things we have is low cost debt. And, you know, when we can borrow at less than 3% fixed agency money or even bridge money at three, then it really bodes a nice argument against inflation. So, you know, when you have inflation that's running, you know, over three, four, five, even 6%, we just, I just came out. And that's that, you know, that's obviously what's just reported. It might, it's probably higher, I would guess. 
then now that really makes uh, real estate a great inflation hedge. So you do have that, which is nice. It's not necessarily a tax play, but if they keep that 1031 in order and they don't mess with the step up basis, which I think they're going to start coming after a lot of that. But really, I think, Ellie, the, the people who are in the biggest trouble are the high wage earners. You know, the, Great, yeah. those, that's who they're going after. As you know, and I know, I have so much depreciation and I just have way more than I need. And the key looking forward, as my good friend says, if you look at the tax code, you know, I'm like, hey, dude, that tax code is boring. Like it's a big, thick book about tax. It's like, it's like reading the dictionary. And he's like, yeah, but look at this. And there's a little piece in there that's basically all the things that you can do that the IRS wants you to do. And he's like, this is where you need to spend your time. And what it is, is it's a series of incentives. It tells you what they want. So I think that we're heading into an affordable housing crisis. I think we're heading into an affordable housing supply shortage. And I don't see how this administration can come after the private landlord, private investors, because it'll just shut down even more investment. Absolutely. At a time where it's severely underfunded and undersupplied. So I really am bullish on rental real estate for a long, long period of time. If you look at the numbers, I mean, I'm in Arizona right now and, and Phoenix is projected to lead the country at 18% rent growth, which is insane. Wow. I don't, I don't know if it'll happen. But the point is, is when they start to look at the migration patterns of people coming in and the supply of housing, and you can kind of see what's been happening, it's really something. And so I think that even though these kinds of things are going to happen, I think the person that's going to be hurt the worst are the people without a plan, the people that are, that are high paid and are looking to invest passively. There's a lot of ways to save tax a lot. And, you know, you just got to resource and take a look at where that might be, because there are significant ways to save on taxes. And you don't just have to sit there and, you know, take your salary and, and pay these high taxes. There's, you know, the government tells you where they want your money invested. Absolutely. And real estate is is definitely one of those places, you know, between cost segregation, just even, you know, regular quote unquote depreciation expenses. There's so many ways to gain those losses on paper and generate a negative K1 and enjoy that. The challenge, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, the challenge is that even if you're a high wage earner and you invest passively sometimes, and I'm not a tax expert, but you can only offset passive gains. So your W-2 income is still going to be taxed. There are all kinds of ways to handle that. And if you're a real estate professional, then you can use that income as well. But what you've talked about is one of the main pain points right now with a lot of doctors, lawyers, tech executives, they make a really nice salary, you know, 300K, half a million, a million dollars a year, and they're paying very high taxes. And you know, many of my investors' dream is to transition and to become full-time passive investors. But to get there, you need discipline, you need time to grow your investments. So, you know, it takes time for your passive income to replace your active income. It doesn't happen overnight. They need to be very 
you know, diligent about it and, and very patient. So if someone would say to you, hey, Ken, what can I do to build wealth? What would be your, your advice to him or her? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think people should have some cash. I think they should have some Bitcoin. I think they should have some gold. I think they should have some silver. I think they should have some specific stocks. You know, just use your common sense. Look at the mm -hmm. companies that are going like this, you know, like companies like Amazon and Apple and, you know, and, and yes, I know they might not move the needle a lot, but they're going to do well. And, you know, you just look at the behavior of people and stay in those sectors I'm a big believer in obviously real estate. I like diverse real estate. So, so I have property in, in Oregon and Washington and Idaho and Nevada and Texas and Arizona and Oklahoma. And so, so I, that's how I diversify, oddly enough, because markets are not the same. So what's going on in Oklahoma City is even different in Tulsa. Absolutely. Phoenix and Tucson and and San Antonio and Dallas and Houston and, and Austin. And so that's how I do it, you know, because those markets are all going up and down independently. So what I always tell people, some of my investors, like, let's say a group of doctors, I help them. I'm like, hey, I'm going to help you buy your, I help my naturopath buy his own building. Actually, I help too. And I'm like, buy a building, pay rent to yourself, depreciate that. And then you now get, you, you pay yourself rent. You have to, you know, holding company and da, da, da. You know how the whole thing works. And so there are small things that they often don't think about. Like one of the things that they can do, well, first they should set up a business and try to figure out how to make money in that business and then try to figure out how to generate expenses in that business. You know, I mean, we've done things like buy corporate jets. You can write off a corporate jet in the first year. Oil and gas investments, you can almost write off the entire amount in the first year. So there's a lot of things that you can do to minimize tax legally and not just through investment in real estate. Because as you know, part of buying real estate is selling real estate too. And so we, uh, you and I also have the capital gain issue, the, yeah. the appreciation recapture issue and all those things. And then, you know, if we, if we exit a property, like I got an unsolicited offer on a property that I built in 2015, not very long ago. We, we own like 24 million on it and you know, it's worth like about somewhere around 90 million. So oh. I was like, okay, so, so if we sell that, then we got, you know, call it 60 some million dollars between me and the partnership, then what, you know, and then you got to pay all your taxes. You deploy it. Yeah. And so what we decided to do was just do a cash out refi and only get part of that because that's tax, tax free. free. Yeah. So we'll probably pull, you know, somewhere around 40 instead, but you know, then we'll roll that again, but we're always just looking for ways to grow that money and also legally, you know, minimize our tax burden. But there are so many ways in my opinion that are available to people, but sometimes they just don't explore them. Yeah, absolutely. And you definitely need experts to explore it. And every deal is complicated and there's many ways, you know, to structure it. And even if you go through a 1031 exchange, if you decide to do it, IRS can challenge it. So you really need to work with really good lawyers to make sure it's almost bulletproof that it's, you go, you know, you go by the book because you have a lot to lose if the IRS is basically not going to recognize that transaction. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like a great plan. I think, you know, getting 40 million tax-free, that's brilliant. 
And the IRS, you know, allows it because it's not a profit. The proceeds, they came from a loan. So yeah, well, yeah, a loan is not taxed. Actually, yeah, yeah, you actually owe the loan back. So yeah, the loan's not forgivable. So you got yeah. it's paid by our tenants. You know, our that's, tenants. That's amazing. Our tenants pay off the new debt. Yeah. So, but it's a problem. Most high net worth people that we have, obviously, we we have a lot of investors in our deals like you do, and that's their biggest issue is how do we save on tax. And I think it's going to become more and more of an issue now with this new administration based on what we're seeing, at least. It looks to me like they're going to really come after, unfortunately, you know, the middle class and upper middle class. It's they're going to come after them pretty hard. Yeah. They don't have as many tools to manage their taxable income and offset it as much as the wealthier and, and the real estate investors, for instance. And I guess it might be also easier to do it for the new administration. So any closing remarks before we move to the lightning round questions? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, I, I want to just say that I think that this business that we're in is the greatest because, you know, one, we find these underperforming assets and we make money for ourselves, make money for our investors. And then we can harvest it out with tax-free income and just keep doing that in perpetuity. So I would say that anybody who's interested in doing it, you know, they should pull the trigger because there's a lot of people that just, it doesn't seem real to them, but I'm like, well, you know, can you do a cash out refinance on your home? Well, yeah, well, okay. Well, we do the same thing just on larger properties. And they're like, oh, okay. So, you know, it just doesn't seem real what we're doing. But the reason is, is government wants and needs housing badly. That's very true. That's very, very true. Well, Ken, thank you so much for your time. That was a really fascinating discussion. We have arrived officially, arrived to the lightning round questions. And the first quick question is, what is your favorite hobby when you're not buying assets or building assets? Right now it's golf. Ah. Yep, yep. I have a place in Idaho, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I play golf up there in the summer. And I play down in Manhattan Beach area, Pelican and Trump National Internet, Trump course. And then in Scottsdale too, you know, there's hundreds of golf courses down here. So play as much as I can. You're in a good place if golf is your thing, that's for sure. And what's the one thing that people don't always know about you? I climbed Kilimanjaro twice. Oh, wow. When was that? 15 and 18. All right. Yeah, with um, both of my kids. I took one. Oh, really? Time. Yeah, both of them were 17 at the time. I took them both independently. And I, and now they've roped me into going a, another time with both of them. So I'll probably do it. <laughs> <the third time. laughs> All right. Is the Everest next? My guide who has done Everest many times, he said, You'll die on Everest. Don't do it. I said, okay. So, <laughs> he said, you're All too right. old. He goes, Everest is a young man's game. You got to be under 30. Oh, wow. All right. What do you wish, Ken, that you had known when you just started in real estate? I wish I would have started earlier. Ah. <laughs> uh, you know? Yep. And I mean, I don't look back, though, with that kind of regret. But, you know, it's an interesting question. But, I mean, my career was awesome. Don't get me wrong. But I wish I would have accumulated more earlier for what I know now. All right. Last question is, what's your advice 
for living an extraordinary life because this is something that is my own personal I would say that that's the one thing that is kind of my agenda that I live by is just to try and live an amazing life try and live extraordinary life what is your advice for people who want to do that well a couple things interesting that you bring this up at this time so this is one of my things too so if you study hospice you know hospice is a service that goes and takes care of the elderly my dad went through hospice he died about 10 years ago and so i really started digging in if you look at their top five regrets now it's very interesting you know and the number one is i wish i would have forgiven and also up on high on the list is i wish i would have taken more time for myself i wish i would have done mm. what i wanted to do and i wish i would have resolved you know some relationships that were damaged at the time oddly enough none of them have to do with money almost none so mm. i think a lot of times people lead with money and cash and all that kind of stuff and for me my entire you know i've been in ypo and eo for my whole life and one of the things that i made a point of was when my kids were in spring break or fall break or summer break, I took that off, period. I didn't work. So literally I matched their schedules to my schedules and it worked, you know, they want to call it. It's like very hard son. to do. Yeah. My son's going to be over here in a couple hours and he's 23 now. And, and what happens is the, those relationships that sometimes you, my friend, he, you said, he goes, listen, what happens is sometimes People go in this order. They go business, kids, wife. That's a recipe for disaster. Mm. Like what it should be is wife, kids, business. And I think that's true. I think a lot of times you make choices on, well, I got to make this call. I got to do this deal. And you miss things. You miss really important things that are small and seeming significant, but they are big and they add up over time. And so my whole thing, that's why I took both my kids to Kilimanjaro and we were, you know, we were gone a month in Africa each, both of us, both times. And it was a hundred percent to be with them. You know, the mountain was insignificant. And so I just pour myself into my friends and family and it's worked out for me pretty well. That's a beautiful advice. That's a beautiful advice. I really appreciate you sharing that. Very, very last question. I know I said last question, but is the very, very last one. And it's a short one is where can people find you, Ken? Because I know, you know, you can type your name on Google. You can probably find you. But what would be the best and easiest way for listeners to reach out to you? Yeah, thank you. Well, KenMacroy.com is the best. K-E-N-M-C-E-L-R-O-Y.com. And we've tried to put everything on there. Well, you know, I was growing my business, which is MC Companies forever. And after I wrote the books and started speaking and all that kind of stuff, which is fun, but I had to like create a vehicle for people to go to and, you know, get information from so that I could continue to do my business. And so KenMacroy.com is the best spot to start. You can find out all about me. You can navigate my YouTube channel, which is close to 300,000 people now. And, you know, it's really, really fun. This whole education piece has been a blast. All right. Yep. Yep. The other thing that I wanted to mention is we actually have something for the tax benefits for some of your investors at kenmacroy.com backslash ready to scale. So they could find that at kenmacroy.com backslash ready to scale. And we've got the tax benefit piece that people can look at because kind of weaves into what we we're talking about today. 
That's wonderful. And all the links that you've mentioned so far, they're all going to be on the show notes, guys. So you can go there and click and read and educate yourself to become better and smarter investors. Ken, thank you so much for your time. That was a great conversation. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure, Allie. Good luck to you. Have fun in Santa Monica. Thank you so much. And for you guys, I hope that you enjoyed the conversation at least as much as I did. Be bold, be great, keep pushing forward, and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.